Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now, for the stories of the week, Ending April 24th, 2015. Teen, 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 teen. What's, What's up, up Infosexing fam? Hello, and welcome to the 21st episode. We're here, we're now, we're live. Get ready for some security news. That's what's up. All right. So, again, keep sending in your fan mail. It's always great to hear from you guys, our fans, guys and gals, especially when we can share it on our Twitter page, Facebook page, and YouTube. Also, keep those questions coming in. We love to help solve problems, so email matternick at infosexsync.com. That's matt or nick at infosexsync.com. Com, 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 com. All right, so time for uh, Patch Tuesday. What happened this week? Uh, so the official list of Windows updates patches was uh, – you know, updated over the weekend to show that 31 patches rated optional are headed for automatic updates um, this Tuesday, so yesterday. Uh, no, it is not officially a patch Tuesday. It's not even a fourth Tuesday, but at least uh, they're getting some advance notice from Microsoft. Uh, here's what they could find uh, from the expected patches. So they have um, a patch, which is a hot fix from last October, which uh, fixes like specified accounts, does not exist error when domain users try to change their password in UPN format in a different domain. So we also have uh, KB3033446, which is a hot fix from March 10th, which fixes Wi-Fi connectivity issues or poor performance in CHT platform computers in Windows 8.1. Another one we see is uh, the update APN database for Cubic Mobile uh, and Verizon Wireless in Windows 8.1. Um, so, for those Windows users with automatic updates turned on who automatically install optional updates, this could prove to be a rocky Tuesday. So, keep an eye out. If anything happens, be sure to roll back um, and, and troubleshoot the issues. So, cool. Um, what, what do you got for us this week, Nick? So, Google's wireless service, Project Fi, is official, but it's only by invite only. And the pricing starts at $20 per month plus... $10 per gig, but it only works with Nexus 6. Oh, okay. What do you have, Vic? You got a Nexus 6? No. Oh, okay. So Google has just launched the site for Project Fi. It's heavily rumored uh, MVNO service. The service combines Sprint and T-Mobile along with Wi-Fi and will seamlessly switch between the networks. Google has an interactive coverage map that we're going to post on our website, and the upfront pricing seems pretty standard. It requires a, quote, FI, FI basics plan, which is $20 a month for unlimited talk and texting, plus taxes. you got to pay those taxes to Uncle Sam, right? Data is the $10 per gigabyte a month. So a 20 basics plan plus 3 gigabyte a month would be $50. $5 more than straight talk charges for the same thing, but that's only if you actually use the data. The unique aspect of the billing is that you never pay for unused data. Your account gets credited in money for data you don't use. The example shows an unused .6 gig of data gets you $6 back. So credits are not limited to 1 gig increments. 
Overages work the same way with no extra fees. Google allows Wi-Fi tethering. The data works in 120 plus countries and it still costs the same $10 per gig that it does in the US. The catch though is that you're limited at 256 kilobits per second or about 3G speeds. International texts are unlimited and international calls cost 20 cents per minute. The big downside is that the service only works with the Nexus 6. The site says, quote, the Nexus 6 works with our unique SIM that lets you access multiple networks and has a state-of-the-art cellular radio tuned to work with different network types, end quote. Google is the only MVNO with control of the hardware, software, and network, which it has used to create seamless switching between networks. Google says calls can even move from cellular to Wi-Fi without dropping. The company says it has more than a million free open Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, They verify it as fast and reliable. Wi-Fi connection is encrypted, allowing users to use public hotspots without being exposed to other users on the same network. The phone number system seems to work a lot like Google Voice. Google will assign you a number, which will then ring on all of your devices that have Google Hangouts installed. Google has an app ready to go, of course. The Project Fi Android app will track data usage and allow users to switch plans and pay bills. It also gives access to 24-7 phone support. The service is invite-only for now. Interested parties can punch their email into the site and hope to score a golden ticket. Um, They signed up and got an email back saying, as you know, we're sending a small number of invites each week, so hang tight. If you do not receive an invite soon, you'll get an update from us within a month. And that's how it is. That is crazy pretty cool right that is that is pretty crazy we'll, we'll see um the coming months what people think about it right we'll have to keep an eye out on that one and, and report back so uh our next story here and also i looked at the coverage map doesn't look pretty good look too too bad we should be good so that is good stuff all right um so we're gonna pick on the iphone <laughs> yeah get your laugh in now vic all right, so an iOS bug sends iPhones into an endless crash cycle when explo- exposed exposed to uh, rogue Wi-Fi. Uh, we should call this one Exposed. I know someone who had an explosion the other day. <laughs> we won't get into that. That is too funny. SSL cert parsing error allows attackers to create a no iOS zone, researchers say. So there's a bug in Apple's iOS 8 that allows nearby attackers to send apps, and in some cases the iPhone or iPad they run on, into an endless reboot cycle that temporarily renders the device useless, according to researchers who demonstrated the attack on Tuesday. The exploit uses a standard Wi-Fi network that generates a specifically designed secure sockets layer SSL certificate to exploit the bug, according to the researchers who work for Israel-based SkyCure. The encrypted communications causes whatever apps happen to be connected to the booby-trapped Wi-Fi network to crash. The vulnerability was introduced in version 8 of Apple um, in the mobile operating system. After sustained connections to the malicious signal, the OS itself will crash, in some cases in a way that causes devices uh, it runs on to spiral into a repeatable boot cycle. Making the attack particularly vexing, Even if users know the endless crashes are generated by the Wi-Fi network they are connected to, they cannot disconnect because the the repeated restarts make it impossible to access the device's user settings as demonstrated in a video. We'll post it uh, on the site. So um, the post says that SkyCure has already privately reported the vulnerability to Apple. Until there's a patch, iPhone and iPad users should make sure they're using iOS 8.3 since it appears to have mitigated some of the effects of the bug. Users should also keep Wi-Fi on their device turned off, except when it's needed. Users can also install apps that give them control over which SSIDs an iPhone or iPad will and will not connect to. SkyCure is withholding technical details about the specific conditions that caused the Wi-Fi networks to carry out the crash attack to prevent miscreants from um, repeating them. There's no indication that the attacks uh, are being carried out in the wild right now. All right, I haven't had any issues. Me neither. I mean, but that's pretty interesting. Um, 
definitely a reason to keep a Faraday page or Faraday cage uh, close by. I'd like to add though, if you have a uh, Android phone, you don't have to worry about this bug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Intel has a compute stick, and it's a full PC that's tiny. So how much is it? Um, I think it's about 150 bucks. And it comes with Ubuntu. Okay, 14.04 long-term support. Yep, takes the mini desktop concept about as far as it can go. The stick isn't even really a desktop in the traditional sense, since it's an HDMI dongle that hangs off the back of your monitor instead of sitting on your desk. It's very powerful, but the Compute Stick is one of the smallest Windows desktops you can buy right now. So let's look at uh, what it's capable of. So the hardware and software. The stick is a boxy plastic slab, a plastic slab mat on the bottom and glossy on the top. It's utilitarian design. There's a small slot for a security loop, vents on the top and sides to help with overheating, and the bare minimum of ports and buttons. It looks like it was made to be hid behind monitors and TV sets, which is fitting. A tiny fan inside the stick spins up when it's been busy for a while, even if what it's been busy with isn't an activity you consider strenuous. Installing a large application like 3D Mark or performing a routine background doing an anti-malware scan. The noise, well that's barely audible, but insistent high pitch were. It's sort of like a buzzing uh, light bulb. You'll either be able to get used to it or it will slowly bore a tiny hole through your skull. Thankfully, it's uh, usually not on while the system is idle. But inside the box you'll find the compute stick itself and a small HDMI extension cable you can use if the stick won't fit neatly into your um, HDMI port. Um, There is a micro USB power adapter that's included for TVs or monitors that don't have a USB port or can't provide enough power through one. Like the uh, NUC's adapter, it, it includes several different types of prongs for different countries' outlets. Um, the benchmarks are based on the way the system behaves when plugged into that adapter, but your mileage may vary a bit. For instance, when they plugged it, the stick into one of the standard USB 3.0 ports in the back of an iMac, it was enough to turn the system on, but not enough to let the compute stick recognize and power a USB keyboard. There may be other performance and power consumption differences too. The compute stick hooked up to a bunch of cables. It's capable of being less conspicuous than this once you hook it up to wireless peripherals. The Windows version of the stick includes a 32-bit version of Windows 8.1 with Bing, of course. The only difference between it and standard Windows 8.1 is that OEMs exchange the ability to choose Internet Explorer's default search engine for a discount on the license. Users can still change the search engine and browser to whatever they want. Of course, you're going to change it to Google from Bing, right? Unless you, you're really a Microsoft person. <laughs> 32-bit Windows helps to relieve the memory pressure you'll feel with just 2 gigs of RAM. And while it does reduce your um, general system performance, in some cases, the applications that truly need the performance and memory increases that 64-bit Windows provides are not kinds of applications you'll want to run on the compute stick. So most Windows applications um, run just fine in 32-bit mode. Many don't have 64-bit mode in the first place, so I can't have this run in Pro Tools or any of my uh, video stuff for uh, InfoSec Sync. The stick's BIOS is bare bones and includes just a handful of options. You can update the BIOS, pick a boot target, toggle secure boot and the EFI shell on and off and specify whether the system is running 32-bit Windows or Ubuntu Linux. The biggest potential downside to the compute stick for people who just want to buy it and play with it is that it has those operating system limitations. It has a 64-bit CPU but 64-bit Windows won't install. Windows 7 won't install either because it won't see eMMC drives or boot from them. Um, We imagine the various flavors of Ubuntu will install and run just fine, but Ubuntu itself is the only one that's officially supported. Just about anything that will run on an x86 processor will run on an NUC or any other desktop, but the stick is much more limited. Finally, the biggest problem they ran into was with the Bluetooth adapter. When the system was busy, lots of storage or CPU activity, mouse and keyboard input would become extremely laggy. Intel tells us that new drivers are coming that should help fix this issue, but the stick only has one USB port. 
Bluetooth connectivity is especially important for keyboards and other peripherals. It's important that it works well, and as of this writing, it doesn't. The Compute Stick uses a quad-core 1.33 or 1.83 gigahertz turbo. Intel Atom Z3735F, based on the Bay Trail architecture. The same kind of chip you'd find in some cheap x86-based Windows and Android tablets. For reference, when loading all four cores with the Prime 95 CPU torture test, the sustain speed settles at around 1.55 GHz. It's accompanied by 2 gigs of 1333 MHz DDR3 RAM and 32 gig of eMMC storage, of which between 19 gig and 20 gig or so is available for general use. Basic 2.4 GHz 802.11n and Bluetooth 4.0 connectivity rounded out. Atom chips have never been known for their performance, and Baytrail is no longer the newest version of the Atom platform on the block. It's been supplanted by Cherry Trail, which made its first retail appearance in Microsoft's new Surface 3 tablet, and the update brought big improvements to the GPU side in particular. What you get in the Compute Stick is adequate for basic computing, but it's going to be inferior to even the slowest Haswell and Broadwell processors from everything, for everything from productivity to gaming to media editing. In some metrics, the Atom's 4 cores can almost match the Haswell Celeron's 2957U's performance in multi-threaded tasks, but single-threaded performance and memory performance are much lower. Graphics performance is even less impressive. The Bay Trail GPU is a cut-down version of the 3-year-old Intel HD 4000 GPU that came with its Ivy Bridge processors and it's only around a third as fast as the cut-rate HD graphics GPU included in the Celeron 2957U. Gaming of any kind isn't possible here unless you're focused on very old games, and the GPU doesn't support more recent versions of OpenGL and other graphics APIs. So maybe Minecraft will work good on that. Yeah, that sounds like, a, sounds like an experiment. But you shouldn't be considering a compute stick for gaming anyway. If you intend to use it as a streaming stick that happens to run other Windows apps, it's more appealing. The hardware supports H.264, which is good, VC1, MPEG2, MVC, VP8, H.263, MJPEG hardware decode acceleration, and H.264 hardware encode acceleration. H.265 is missing, but the list of things Baytrail can play without overtaxing the CPU and GPU encompasses most of the codecs used by major streaming services today. Hook it up to a 1080p TV, and you're good to go. Storage performance is roughly in line with what we've seen in other cheap eMMC Windows PCs, like HP Stream 11. It's not great. It can't keep up with the SATA 3 SSDs and PCI Express SSDs run circle around those. But it's quick enough for booting and launching applications and should feel faster and more consistent than a spinning HDD does. That's hard disk drive. How does all of this feel in real life? Well, maybe, predictably, a little slow. There's a bit of wait time associated with pretty much everything, whether you're, you're installing or running apps or just browsing the internet. If you open too many tabs or too many programs, you'll also run into the two gigs of memory limit pretty quickly which adds an extra beat or two. Again, anything with a Haswell or Broadwell CPU in it will feel snappier in general, even if it's a Celeron. Luckily, that slowness doesn't come without some benefit. The Compute Stick sips power no matter what it's doing, even compared to the already low-power NUC boxes. Dedicated TV streaming sticks and boxes can go even lower. But the Compute Stick will let you do a lot more stuff than any of them. So how do you feel about this compute stick? Would you like to get your hands on this compute sure, stick? Sure, I'd like to, I like to um, play with them and see what, what they could do. I'd like to put them on all my TVs and stream them. What so about... They still make the Celeron? <laughs> I guess, man. <laughs> Remember when you used to like make PCs by yourself and you'd like put Celeron yeah, in there? Yeah, you put Celeron in there just because you didn't have the money. But they were noticeably like slower, half the yeah, processor time. But you know what? This one also is a small dongle. Yeah. So it's a pretty small, pretty small form factor. It sounds like uh, just between you and 
I and all of our listeners, sounds like something you just buy for the interim until something else comes out that's newer and faster. Well, I think this definitely uh, this definitely has some use. Um, but, you know, with a small form factor, you could stick it anywhere. So Andrew uh, Cunningham has a review. He says the compute stick is a neat idea and around $150, a tempting impulse buy, but don't confuse it with a budget mini desktop. HP's $180 Stream Mini is faster than the Compute Stick and much more upgradable and versatile, and the Mini PC universe only expands from there. We wouldn't recommend the Stick as a permanent general-use desktop, though it could serve as one on a provisional basis. It's just too slow and low on resources for that. The Compute Stick is mostly centered on media streaming and playback at home and meeting room, web kiosk, and thin client usage at work. If what you want is basic productivity functions in a package that is small and easy to hide, this device isn't bad. The one potential showstopper right now is the lagginess of Bluetooth input when the system gets busy. Hopefully, Intel follows through with its promise fixed. If you're looking for something a little more versatile with better peripheral support and graphics performance, you should still be looking at larger desktops. Right now, the Compute Stick feels like a version 1.0 product as well as a niche product. A revision with Cherry Trail would go a long way toward making its performance more acceptable for a wider range of tasks, and we hope that Intel gets around to lifting some of the OS restrictions in place there. It's really neat that a full Windows PC will fit into something you could stick in your pocket. Alright listeners, so it boils down to this. The good about it. It's small, cheap, uses little power, plugs right into existing TVs and monitors, and can often be powered using only their built-in USB ports. The bad. Performs well enough for what it does, but compared to other mini desktops, it's slow. Low RAM and storage, which is even worse in the Linux version. Limited official OS support. One full-size USB 2.0 port, which limits the number of peripherals you could plug in at once. The ugly. Bluetooth lagginess can make wireless, mouse, and keyboard use a pain. So what do you think about it, Vic? Junk. Next. Oh. Oh, damn. It's like, it's like technology police over here. All right, so let's talk about drug dealers. So What? What? Yeah, there's multiple ways to get a password. Really? So I remember seeing this comic. It had, like, um, how people break or how how you can acquire a password on one it was there was two people there and they said we're going to come up with an algorithm to factor you know for the cryptographic keys and and break the password the next one was we'll just keep brute forcing it and trying it then the other guy had a wrench and they said (laughs) give me five minutes i'll get the password (laughs) right so that third uh option was kind of used in this case. So really? That's considered brute force, too. Yeah, yeah right? technically, a different type of brute force, physical brute force. So Was it an Allen wrench or bigger than that? Bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, so um, drug dealer. Cops leaned me over the 18th floor balcony to get my password. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait. The last time I heard about someone being leaned over a balcony was Vanilla Ice. Is this Vanilla Ice? No, actually, it was Blanket, which was Michael Jackson's oh, baby. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you remember? We just had a guest appearance. All right, so if you want to access... Or a ghost appearance. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Shimon! If you want to access encrypted data on a drug dealer's digital device, you might want to break the crypto, or you might just want to break the man. So, according to the testimony from the police corruption trial currently um, roiling the city of Philadelphia, officers from an undercover drug squad took the latter route back in 2000, uh, November 2007. After arresting their, subste- their suspect, Michael Cascioli, in the hallway outside of his 18th floor apartment, the officers took Cascioli back inside. Although they lacked a search warrant, the cops searched Cascioli's rooms anyway. According to a federal indictment, the officers repeatedly assaulted and threatened Cascioli during the search to obtain information about the location of money, drugs, and drug suppliers. So Cascioli kept 
$800 of cash in his nightstand, which he told the cops about. The officers allegedly took money from Cascioli's nightstand and used it to purchase pizza for themselves. <laughs> and we have pizza here tonight at the podcast. Pretty interesting. So Cascioli, who gave an interview last October to the Philadelphia Daily News, said the cops wanted much more cash. The trial has largely focused on allegations that members of the squad shook down drug suspects for money and valuables. And they basically say, said, I'm going to break your face if you don't tell us where the money is. Cascioli recalled one of the officers saying. Another allegedly um, urinated on some of his possessions. What? The government claims that the officers also roughed up Cascioli, punching him in the stomach. After a few hours of this, which involved an attempt to lure one of Cascioli's suppliers out of his building, or to his building, excuse me, the officers focused on uh, Cascioli's Palm Pilot. Who the heck has a Palm Pilot? (laughs) Nick. Are we serious here? Is this guy's name Nick? Palm Pilot. Oh, my gosh. Which they correctly <laughs> believe contained the information they wanted. But Cascioli wouldn't provide the password. It uses death encryption. Come on now. You can break that. It probably uses like RC4. One, two, three, four, five is probably his password. Right. <laughs> it's probably a snake game. You know the little snake game you play? <laughs> you know the one where you go around and you eat the thing? And it. No? Nobody mm-hmm. had the Nokia? You had no, a start tag. No, he had a start tag. He doesn't have that. <laughs> All right, so Cascioli wouldn't provide the password. He claims the police then tried to ex- uh, extract the password through intimidation of the Palm Pilot. Palm Pilot's head <laughs> password? <laughs> so Cascioli says, Officer Thomas, <laughs> Lee Cordello, asked him a question. He says, have you ever seen a training day? <laughs> when Cascioli said, uh, yes, I've seen a training day, Cascioli says, Licciardello looked him into the eyes and said, this is training day, for real. (laughs) And then instructed officers Norman and Jeffrey Walker to take him to the balcony. (laughs) According to Cascioli in the indictment, uh, Licciardello told him to do whatever they had to do to get the password. (laughs) So, (laughs) out on the balcony, Cascioli says officers Norman and Walker lifted him up by each arm and leaned him over the balcony railing. In his testimony at a trial this month, Cascioli provided more details under oath about what happened that night. The Palm Pilot, he said, contained records on his $400,000 stash, which he had split for safekeeping between the home of his brother and the home of a friend. When the cops allegedly took him out to the balcony, Cascioli said he truly feared for his life. He said, they started to lift me a little, and then his feet were off the ground. He said he was afraid. He thought they were going to drop him. Isn't this what drug dealers do themselves? Uh, they usually bring a weed whacker or something and hit somebody with a weed whacker. Like on that, what was that? Lonely Island? The um, the music video? Fantasy Island? No. <laughs> no. The plane, it's funny. The plane. So uh, he said, I thought they were going to drop me over the railing. Cascioli said he then gave up the password. Given that Cascioli's uh, and his password was uh, pizza... Because that's what they bought with the money. His password was pizza? Yeah. With an at sign. Well, you know what? If he had given them more money, they could have at least gone to Ruth Chris or something. You know? <laughs> I know. Instead, they had to go to Little Caesars. Little Caesar. Yeah. So, given that uh, Cascioli was, in fact, a significant drug dealer, his testimony might sound dubious. Indeed, the head of the fraternal or Philadelphia uh, Fraternal Order of Police last year told a local paper that Cascioli's account sounds ludicrous. This isn't a lethal weapon movie. But last week, one Riggs. of the... <laughs> oh, my shoulder. But last week, one of the cops who had done the threatening uh, took the witness stand to corroborate Cascioli's account. Jeffrey Walker, who was arrested in an FBI corruption sting back in 2013, admitted that he and another officer had in fact leaned Cascioli over his balcony to elicit the password. According to the indictment... The night only ended when officers stole personal items belonging to Cascioli valued at approximately $8,000 before leaving for good. The whole crazy issue is a reminder that strong passwords are excellent tools for protecting your information from distant internet predators. But when the predators have you alone in a room, the real question isn't about the strength of your password, but how much pain and fear you're willing to endure before giving the it up. The strength of your muscles. That is pretty um, interesting. 
Yeah, so I'd like to add, he seems a little whiny. He's a drug dealer. Give him the $800 and the password and be done with it. Why would you go through torture for and, that? And they stole $8,000 worth of stuff. Yeah, just that should be a write-off for him, right, Nick? <laughs> hey, why are you asking me? <laughs> so, uh, so we talked about the magic stick and the 18th floor password. What's next? Now, you know what? If he's worried about the railing, he might be a little more concerned about jail time. <laughs> yes, he's here all week, folks. Try the fish. <laughs> so this next story is uh, WordPress plugins being susceptible to dangerous exploits. More than a dozen WordPress plugins have been updated to patch vulnerabilities that allow attackers to inject potentially dangerous commands into the browsers of people visiting trusted websites. Administrators responsible for WordPress sites should make sure the fixes are installed as soon as possible. The cross-scripting vulnerabilities make it possible for hackers to concoct special address URLs that inject client-side code into vulnerable web pages viewed by visitors. Exploits can steal highly sensitive authentication cookies, which give users access to their private accounts without having to enter a password. Cross-site scripting attacks can also change the content inside a vulnerable web page. Along with SQL injection exploits, cross-site scripting attacks are among the most common class of attacks carried out on the Internet. In the past few days, more than a dozen WordPress plugins have been updated to purge cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, according to an advisory published by web application security firm Securi. They are Jetpack, WordPress SEO, Google Analytics by Yoast, All-in-One SEO, Gravity Forms, Multiple Plugins from Easily Digital Downloads, Updraft Plus, WP E-Commerce, WP Touch, Download Monitor, Related Posts for WordPress, My Calendar, P3 Profiler, Give, Multiple iThemes products including Builder, and exchange broken link checker and last ninja forms the vulnerabilities are the result of developers who misused two widely used programming functions that modify or add query strings to url specifically add underscore add underscore query underscore arg and remove underscore query underscore arg Many developers mistakenly assumed the functions would escape or sanitize user input so it's safe to use. In fact, they don't. For the functions to escape user input, they must be followed by functions such as escape underscore URL or escape underscore URL underscore raw. The WordPress developer team has more guidance and we will list that on our webpage. The plugins uh, I stated earlier were updated as part of a coordinated response following a blog post from last week that brought the cross-site scripting attack coal to light. Security and others then analyzed the top 300 or so plugins and notified developers of those plugins found to be vulnerable. WordPress admins who use any of them should ensure they have been updated in the past few days to patch the bug. It's likely that additional WordPress plugins remain vulnerable, so administrators should scrutinize all plugins running on their site to make sure they are not susceptible to the same type of attacks. Up next, Microsoft Office 365 Lockbox and how it gives customers last word on data access. Do tell. So, new monitoring APIs, file level encryption for email, roll your own encryption coming next year. So one of the concerns that keeps many companies from adopting software as a service for email and other collaboration services has been the issue of who has control over the security of their content. Today at the RSA conference, Microsoft is announcing changes to its Office 365 service that will allow or allay some of those concerns. Giving customers greater visibility into the security of their application and control over what happens with them. At the same time, it will potentially be harder for government agencies and law enforcement to secretly subpoena the contents of an organization's email. In interviews with Ars, uh, Microsoft General Manager for Office 365, Julia White, outlined three new features which are um, basically 
being announced in a blog post from Office 365 team corporate vice president Rajesh Jha today. So the Office 365 will now include a customer lockbox feature that puts customer organizations in control of when Microsoft employees can gain access to their data. It requires explicit commit or explicit permissions from a customer before systems can be accessed to perform any sort of service on their Office 365 services. The capability will be turned on by the end of 2015 for email and for SharePoint by the end of the first quarter of 2016. So White says, we have automated everything we can to prevent the need for people having to touch customer data. It's almost zero. There are very rare instances when a Microsoft engineer has to log into customer services. Now we are going to, in those rare instances, make customer approval mandatory to do so. That would also apply to law enforcement requests for access. When customer opts into the lockbox, all requests would go into that process. So it's a customer assurance of transparency. We want to systematically look at what type of control and transparency customers want and provided it to them, White said. So Microsoft is also extending its file-level encryption of data at rest in Office 365 to exchange email. Previously, only files in SharePoint had file-level encryption. Add the implementation of that file-level protection is an intermediate step to Microsoft's next big security improvement, the ability for customers to provide their own encryption keys for content to to be delivered sometime in 2016. File level encryption is the foundation for that capability, White said. Ideally, the customer would load their key up into Office 365, but we want to work with customers to see how they want to do it. It's part of the overall defense in-depth approach. And while Microsoft has provided Office 365 customers with a variety of activity logging, the company is preparing to release an application programming interface, or API, that will allow customers and third-party developers to tap more deeply into management and security event data, both visualize activity and automate workflow for security tasks. The new Office 365 Management Activity API will allow developers to use logs as security and compliance signals, White said, that can be pulled into system management tools. Several third-party developers have already built integration hooks for their platform based on the API, which will be made more widely available in the private preview program this summer. Wow. Really cool stuff. That's definitely a good step forward in security. Microsoft stepping up again, right? Yep. I I can dig it. Well, dig this. A woman sues Google claiming she lost thousands through Google Play store hack. Oh, do tell. Google never reimbursed her after agreeing that the purchases weren't hers, she says. Her name's Susan Harvey. A woman from Madeira, California recently filed a lawsuit against Google alleging that she lost thousands of dollars over 16 months due to her Google Play Store account being hacked. In her complaint, filed in a U.S. District Court in Eastern California, Harvey also says that when she reported the incident to Google, representatives from the company did not believe her claims. Even after she convinced them that the transactions are fraudulent, Harvey alleges the company never made good on its promise to reimburse her. In March 2013, she bought her first Android phone and signed in using her existing Google email address. She set up an account with Google using her Bank of America debit card and downloaded a trial version of a game. A little later, she updated the game to the full version. For over one year, Harvey did not notice any issues with Google Play Store transactions. By August 2014, Harvey bought a second Android phone and wanted to transfer an app she purchased in 2013 to the new phone. Quote, Plaintiff logged onto her Google account through computer and was notified through her Google dashboard that there were 109 transactions on her account, the complaint alleges. Quote, upon clicking on the appropriate tab on Google's website, plaintiff was shocked to find approximately 650 listed transactions, the majority of which were unrecognizable to the plaintiff and certainly not transaction conducted by plaintiff, end quote. Cross-referencing with her bank records, Harvey found that the fraudulent transactions occurred between April 15, 2013 and May 2014, costing her thousands of dollars, according to her attorney. When she contacted Google and Bank of America, both corporations asked her to file a police report, which she did, but neither company agreed to refund the money she lost. Harvey then went to the vendors that were listed erroneously in her transaction history. Quote, Almost every vendor that cooperated with plaintiff advised her the same thing. 
They could not identify the transaction numbers as part of their billing and the transactions cited by plaintiff and Google transactions under which Google is receiving monies, end quote, the complaint states. Harvey again took her complaint back to Google, and Google finally acknowledged that she clearly did not effectuate the transactions. Harvey's lawyers say that. Although the company promised to reimburse her, Harvey says she has not received a reimbursement as yet. While Harvey is suing for negligence due to Google's slow response after she told the company about the fraudulent charges, she's also claiming that Google insufficiently secured her email address, password, debit card number, expiration date, and mailing and billing addresses in accordance with industry security standards. Harvey alleges that a security vulnerability in Google's Play Store allowed hackers to obtain her information and subsequently post fraudulent transactions to her bank account. Google said it had no comment, and Harvey's lawyers did not return ARS's request for comment. While the name of the app that Harvey downloaded and then updated is unknown, some similar-sounded Android app malware issues have been in headlines in recent years. In 2013, security researchers found that dozens of apps on the Google Store contained a malicious ad network library, library called Bad News, which, after being downloaded, would upload phone numbers, unique device identifiers, and other data from the compromised phone and then asked the user to install fake app updates for legitimate apps. As recently as this February, security researchers at Avast discovered three gaming apps that appear to be normal when a user first downloads them, but then after several weeks begins to cause problems. In March, Google officially announced that it would be ditching its automated malware scanning and move to a human-driven review of apps and updates. Awesome. That is pretty cool stuff. So be sure to be careful where you put that password. You know what gets me with that is uh, it took her a year to figure out that she was being charged. Well, was she making payments the whole time? Hmm. That didn't come across. You know, hey, very this good is kind of weird. A very, very good question. Hmm. Interesting. So the coolest thing I think that came out this week was this next story that Matt's going to cover. Tell me about it, Matt. Stingray. Stingray. Mm-hmm. Like in the water, stingray? Yeah. The Corvette stingray? So, uh, this machine catches stingrays, the Pony Express demo cellular threat detector. So, an exclusive look at Pony's new tool for catching cellular network attacks. At the RSA conference in San Francisco today, the network penetration testing and monitoring tool company, Pony Express, will demonstrate its newest creation. A sensor that detects rogue cellular network transceivers, including Stingray devices and other hardware used by law enforcement to serotypitously monitor and track cell phones and users. In an exclusive demonstration for ARS, Pony Express CTO Dave Porcello and Director of Research and Development Rick Farina show, uh, showed off the company's new cell phone uh, network threat or cell network threat detection capabilities, which integrate into Pony's pulse security auditing service. The capability will give the companies the ability to monitor cellular networks around them and detect anomalies called, uh, caused by rogue cellular base station, IMSI catchers, and devices used to extend cellular coverage into areas that may not be authorized. So, of all the potential security threats to companies and individuals that have emerged over the past few years, perhaps the hardest to crack is rogue cellular base stations. Whether they're used to attack the privacy of a cell phone user's communications or as a backdoor out of places where cell phone usage is restricted, configuring unauthorized cell towers has become increasingly simple. It doesn't necessarily even require law enforcement-grade hardware. Anyone with a HackRF card or software-defined radio kit in an open-source software can turn a laptop computer into a cellular network transceiver, or even a cell jammer. So call baiting. The real thing that scares people the most is that we have no visibility into these things, Porcello said. Nobody knows how many of them are out there, but they definitely are out there. Last September, ESD America, which manufactures the crypto phone secure cell phone, reported that more than a dozen rogue cell towers have been discovered in D.C. It's not clear if all of these are being operated by law enforcement. Way back in 2010, the Washington, D.C. SMUCON conference, Chris Paget, now known as Kristen Paget, demonstrated that he could capture the cell phone data of attendees using a rig that cost about $1,500. He bought just a commodity, software-defined radio card, and loaded OpenBTS, which is an open-source GSM cellular base station software package, on his laptop. 
He made a point of using a very small antenna, so he only hijacked about half of the audience in the auditorium. I'm sure that this sort of thing was being done before that, but I think that this was the first public demonstration, Porcello says. At the same time, law enforcement use of such systems grew. Using the same principle as malicious cellular base stations, authorities could capture cellular phones, International Mobile Subscriber Identity, or IMSI, as a way of identifying targeted phone and executing a man-in-the-middle attack against it, acting as an intermediary between the phone and a legitimate cell tower in order to intercept and record conversations. These devices called IMSI catchers, or stingrays, have controversially been used by law enforcement or local law enforcement across the United States often under non-disclosure agreements. Another threat faced by companies and highly regulated industries is the unauthorized use of microcells, or femtocells, which is a small base station often used by cell carriers to extend cellular network coverage in places where towers might not have coverage. If a company is trying to prevent personal cell phone usage within a facility through passive means, for example, an employee might plug a femtocell base station at their desk and make an outbound call that aren't through the company's call logging system. This also introduces the potential threat of cellular jamming by someone seeking to block service for malicious reasons. While all this has been recognized as a threat for some time, there has been one major obstacle in the way of companies protecting themselves against cellular network attacks. Until now, using hardware that could detect such networks would break federal law. There are already some tools available to detect IMSI catchers, such as Snoop Snitch, which is an Android application that can warn a phone user of suspicious cell towers that might indicate an IMSI catcher rogue base station. But other tools available to detect the full spectrum of potential cellular threats are largely restricted to government customers, uh, and many carry a six-digit price tag. It's real easy to make something that can do this, but can only be used by the government or law enforcement, says Farina. But so many people have these problems and no way to solve them. If you've got a good-sized company, you're absolutely a target for somebody setting up a small base station and grabbing your data, pretty cheaply. Setting up a watchman. So Pony's cellular threat detection capability is based on FCC-certified cellular transceiver hardware, and it will be integrated into the company's Pone Pro network sensor line, the corporate version of the Pone plug. A 4G cellular transceiver is integrated directly into the device. What we're focusing on is the malicious use of cellular, a handful of specific things we can detect passively now, said Porcello. And there will be a lot more at the time we shipped, he added. The rule sets for identifying some of the malicious behaviors are pretty rudimentary at this point, and additional work will be required to tune out the false positives. But the rules are good enough now to detect rogue and malicious cellular base station and IMSI catchers and interceptors with some reliability. Based on their testing so far, they have some good data to zero out false positives. They're looking for a couple of things right now, and they think it's uh, reasonable to infer. Some of the alert rules created for the rogue cellular network sensor in Pony Express's Pulse web interface um, include a number of things. The cellular threat detection system looks at a number of factors to determine whether a cellular base station is of concern. First, unauthorized or unknown cell providers. The mobile network code, or MNC, and mobile country code, or MCC, of the base station and the frequency range they provide um, service on could be indicators of someone running a rogue base station. They could be from unknown carriers, carriers not authorized to operate in a certain area, or an operator that is suddenly offering something that shouldn't be available, Farina said. Anomalous or suspicious base stations. So signal strength variation could indicate a base station that has moved or changed its transmitting power. The standard deviation of power from base stations is relatively sane, says Farina. We can flag when a base station signal changes wildly. This will be extended to detect changes in existing cell service, Porcello says, such as down to a 2G service. New stations suddenly popping up could also set off an alarm possibly indicating a femtocell or other unauthorized cell base stations. IMSI catchers and interceptor identification. This is based on whether a base station is advertising itself as a major carrier but only provides 2G service. The surest sign someone is trying, or the surest sign somebody is trying to intercept a cell data. Rogue or malicious cellular base stations based on open source software. One of the rule sets in the current capability can detect Yate, default base station configurations. 
so indicating someone is configuring a cellular base station as a gateway for phone calls for malicious purposes. Reach out and punch someone. So cellular base stations are not the only mobile network-based attack vector faced by many companies. Cheap and readily available GSM-based devices have found their way onto a number of criminal activities. You see all sorts of rogue devices moving to GSM, Porcello says. Hackers and criminals are taking advantage of this like crazy because they know you can't legally monitor them. Porcello cited credit card and ATM skimmers as an example. The credit card skimmer of choice now is a GSM-connected skimmer. You don't have to be near it and never have to collect it. Just dump all the credit card numbers by SMS message back to a throwaway phone number. Eventually, Porcello said, the FCC will have to give companies a way of spotting these sorts of devices without breaking the law. The FCC is going to have to create some exceptions for companies to monitor this traffic because their workforces are moving to 4G LTE, he said. And with more and more businesses taking place over cellular broadband, cellular network attacks could become increasingly costly. Wow, that's pretty crazy. That's an awesome product. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we met with them at B-Sides DC. We did. And, uh, and and interviewed them. I think we actually did speak to the CTO, um, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Does, does this device pick up analog? No, so your phone is safe, you, Nick. You're safe, Nick. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Ooh, uh, it just keeps going, doesn't it? Folks? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't pick up your satchel phone. <laughs> <laughs> the phone or the phone that the phone of choice for Nick was the iPhone too. Right. For a while, he upgraded from the Zach Morris uh, cell phone. The Zach Brown band. And with that, folks, we're gonna take a break. Come back. Come back. Finish out the show. show. All right, and we're back. We're back. Be back. So, uh, very good show, guys. Uh, number 21 in the book. In the, close it up. It's in the books. 21 is done. We're going to post this. Um, we got something special coming up here soon. Um, remind, it kind of uh, rhymes with uh, Mamazon. <laughs> That's a hard one. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we'll have uh, something cool to share with you guys here on the show. Um, but yeah, it's, it's coming soon, so definitely keep a listen out there. Um, those of you listeners that are you know listening every week, we appreciate it. And uh, that's pretty much all I have. Shout-out-wise, I just want to shout-out the fans. You guys are awesome. So keep on listening. Keep on getting that security news. And stay in, in sync, sync with InfoSecSync. Info